Hi, everyone. How are you going? Good? That's good. Um, I've got my tea here. I think I sang too hard. So my voice is <laughs> I'm just really you know, up in my game. And so my voice is a little bit croaky. So bear with if it kind of goes. Um, we have been in the process of this series, the King series, The Kingdom and the Cross. And it's just been a really great um, exploration of what it is that Jesus was actually saying. What was his message whilst he was here? What do the Gospels say was the key thing? And we've looked at how the message is of the kingdom of God. It's here. Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And we were going to see restoration. And so today, I'm continuing that. And we uh, two weeks ago, when we had our service, Greg started sharing about the parables and looked at the parable of the sower. And I've taken that idea and I'm going, cool, we're going to look at the parables and some more parables, but we're going to look at Luke this time, some parables in Luke, and look at what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God, what it's like, and also, who is this God that is has the reign and rule in this kingdom. Because we can talk about the kingdom of God a lot, but I think also sometimes we just need to come back to remembering the nature and the character of who our God is. So we're going to look at both today. And we're going to be looking at that from Luke chapter 15. And it, in Luke chapter 15, and you're probably going, oh yeah, I don't know what that is. You'll know in a minute. The parables that are there, they're pretty famous. But overall, this chapter has this real invitation to restoration, because that's what the kingdom is about. And before we get there, I have a little bit of um, Greek for you, because I know you all really enjoy learning a second language. So we have Greek up here for you. You've learned something new today. The word basileia. I don't know if you've ever opened up the Bible and you've been reading the New Testament and you just see that word basileia. I, unless you're reading the Greek, I don't think you ever have. But the word Basileia is where we get our word kingdom from. So when you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew or the kingdom of God in the other gospels, the word is Basileia. And it's a Greek word that means the rule and reign of. So the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God and it's that territory, that area. So when we pray, Lord, that your kingdom come, let your will be done here on earth, what we're praying is, that Greek is, Lord, let your rule and your reign come on earth as it already is in heaven. So it's just something I, I think is always interesting and a really good way to always be changing our thinking or refreshing our thinking on what does it mean. It's this rule and this reign of God. And so then importantly, we kind of also need to know, well, who is this God? Who is this God who we are asking to come and rule and reign on earth? And we see who he is in Jesus. And Jesus teaches us something about this in Luke chapter 15. So let's have a look. If you've got your Bibles, whether you've got a version like this or your phone, or it will come up on the screen, we have... Luke chapter 15, oops, sorry, the verses there, 4 to 7, are incorrect. That's my bad. Um, but we're going to start at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered or grumbled. Keynote, that muttered word is the same word that's used when the Israelites are in the desert for 40 years muttering. It's that same idea. Luke's pretty purposeful when he uses that word. The teachers of the Lord muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Luke sets this scene for us. 
and he's got some pretty key characters here. But importantly, Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, Luke loves food. He loves talking about food and meals. Jesus is often um, in a meal setting in Luke because meals coming around a table, eating together, was a symbol of belonging. And so here, we have the Pharisees complaining about how much Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And so we get this idea that Luke's setting the scene, that Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and the disciples are standing back, uh, not the disciples, sorry, the Pharisees are standing back, and they're grumbling about it. But meals were so important in this culture and Luke uses meals because his whole message is Jesus was about invitation to belonging. Meals were a sense of invitation to belonging. It was casting vision for what it could look like, what belonging could look like and it was so much bigger than what humans had imagined it to be. And so we have this vision, this, this scene of Jesus and then we have these characters and our characters in this scene, we have our tax collectors, and Luke uses the tax collectors as a whole to symbolize those who were the oppressors. Tax collectors in Jewish culture were Jews who were employed by the Romans to uh, take money from their own people, and they were considered oppressors. So our crew with Jesus is looking pretty interesting. We've got the oppressors, then we've got the sinners, Luke mentions the sinners, and these were all the ones that were considered cast aside outside of what was acceptable company, those ones on the margins, those ones who were outcast, we've got them too. Then we've got the Pharisees, and they were symbolic of those who were hostile towards Jesus' message of restoration, of welcome, of belonging. And we have the disciples. Now you'll note that disciples aren't actually mentioned here, but in chapter 14... Jesus has told them the cost. He's speaking to the disciples and saying, the cost of following me is laying down your life and picking up your cross. And then in chapter 16, he's speaking directly to the disciples again. So we can assume the disciples are also there in the mix. So we pretty much have this broad painting of who's actually invited into the kingdom already here in verse 1 and 2. This is it. All of these people, those who are the oppressors, those who are the victims, those who are religious, religious elite, those who are already followers of Jesus, they are all there at this meal. The parables that follow are actually Jesus' way of explaining what's already happening there. And so, we also have to remember as spectators, we're not really spectators to this. It's easy for us to read this and kind of go, oh yeah, cool, he was telling a story. But we're a bit like the disciples. If we're followers of Christ, consider yourselves maybe like the disciples listening to this because we're called to do as Jesus had done. The disciples were Jesus' apprentices, so they would have been sitting there watching and learning and realising we're going to be called to do the same thing. We're going to carry this sitting with all of these types of people and doing the same thing. And so for us too, we've got to lean in and go, all right, God, what are you saying? How are we going to do what it is that you want us to do? What does it look like? And so then Jesus launches off into the parables. And we have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. 
And I'm going to do a hands up because Jesse's like, church really loves doing a hands up. So hands up if you've heard of those parables before. Let me see your hand. Yeah, come on. At least if you don't, the prodigal son is probably more familiar. You might know that one a little bit. The title, the prodigal son, I like to call it the lost sons because there's not just one. So Jesus launches into the parables. And so here we go in verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven, God's community, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, let's remember the word repent means a change of mind or a change of thinking. So when we read this, it reads, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who changes their mind, changes their thinking and changes their direction than over 99 righteous persons who don't think they need to change their mind. Then he goes on, the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose you're a woman that has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels in God's heavenly community over one sinner who changes their mind. In these two parables, Jesus is building up to the third. But what's really interesting here is the stakes continue to increase. So we have one sheep out of 100, then we have one coin out of 10, and then we have, we're going to hear, the two sons. And the question is often asked here, and in my research I found it really interesting that Jesus always poses the question. He says, wouldn't you go after that one sheep out of the 99? Guess what? They probably wouldn't have. Actually, these two parables would have been putting people in this position of going, who goes and leaves 99 in the wilderness to find one, then come back, and then you throw a celebration, which is going to cost you another animal. You're going to throw a big party, have all your neighbours. You've just been out in the wilderness, and you're coming back. And Jesus goes, yeah, because guess what? God is not like you. And then the woman with the coin, yeah, okay, maybe we could imagine turning the house over, trying to find this coin, it's precious to her, and she's trying to find it, and then she's like, yes, I found it, I'm going to throw a party and celebrate. So then she spends more than what she's already found. Again, makes no sense. Economically, you've just like spent the whole time trying to find it. Now you're going to spend it on a celebration. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is about the lost being found, but the celebration and the joy and the generous, extravagant nature of God that is not like us. We are not naturally like that, and we need that challenge and encouragement. God seeks and restores what is lost. There's this wholeness. The sheep comes back into the flock. It's whole. The coin goes back into the mix of the ten and its whole. So God, again, restoring. And then Jesus tells the story about the lost sons. And with this third story, it begins with, 
Now, there was a man who had two sons. And within this context, the hearers are going, ah, yeah, we know stories like this. Father Isaac with his sons, Jacob and Esau. Oh, there's going to be some drama. All right, what's, God, what's Jesus going to say here? Probably there'll be a celebration. That's the, the, the theme here. They go, yeah, we know what it's going to look like. The son will probably do something wrong, the younger one, and then, you know, the dad will forgive him and maybe, like, give him a job or something, and there'll be a party. We get the gist. But Jesus, he really lays it down and really surprises the hearers here. So this third story, the youngest son, and if you are familiar with it, then bear with me. But if you're not, I'm going to tell it anyway. I'm not going to read out the whole scripture. I thought I'd just do a recap. But we know the youngest son comes to the father and says, I'm done. I want my money. I want my inheritance. I want to go and live my life the way I want to live it. The thing about this situation is, for a son in this time to have gone to his father and said that was the equivalent of him saying to his dad in front of their whole community, you are dead to me, I wish you were dead, I want my money, I'm out. This was so shameful and so dishonouring to the whole family and to the father. The father had every right to turn around and say, well, one, no. Secondly, you're out of the family. Third, he could have put his son to death. He had every right. This was the culture that they lived in, this honour-shame culture where, particularly for men, your worth and who you were and your identity was all bound up in how much honour you had. So you avoided anything that brought you shame. So straight up, the son's like shaming his father. But what does the father do? He generously says, sure, here you go. And so the son goes off. And we know that the son, the youngest son, goes and lives it up, spends everything he has, becomes so destitute he's working in a foreign country in a pig farm and for the Jews becomes this symbol of everything that is detestable to them. Everything that is shameful, everything that is detestable. And he's in the pigsty and he has this moment, it says he comes to his senses and he goes, I, there's got to be something better than this. I'm going to go back to my father because even if I get just a job, I'll beg him for mercy and I'll try and get a job just as a servant because anything has to be better than this. And so we start to see this change of mind and this going back to the father. And I think probably in the most beautiful scene, I hope that one day a filmmaker makes this, this parable into a film because it's got to be one of the most beautiful scenes, at least when I picture it in my head. The father is sitting probably at the gates of the town with the other elders of the village. He was wealthy, he was well-to-do. They would often sit just at the gates of the village and talking. The father, whilst the son is still far off, and that word still far off is symbolic of in a far country estranged from the family, from village, from faith. While the son is still estranged, still far, and, and estranged from the family, estranged from faith, the father sees him. And what does he do? 
he runs. I reckon it's just got to be the best scene. This father sees his son who would not have been very recognisable. He would have looked like a slave. We know he has no shoes on. He was probably naked. Only slaves never wore shoes. So he's coming into this place that was his home as a slave. The father sees him and he runs towards his son. Now, for this wealthy elder of this community, remembering they kind of wore robes, to run, if you've ever worn a dress before, and look, you know, if you've ever worn a long one or a skirt, a sarong maybe, you know you've got to like hoik it up if you're going to run because that, you're not going to move fast. So he would have hoiked it up and he would have run. For a wealthy elder of the community to show any part of his leg, his ankle, anything like that to do that was so dishonourable. It was only ever done. They had like laws about this, right? Like cultural laws. It was only ever done if it is a life and death situation. What does the father do? He hoiks it up and he runs, bringing dishonour and shame upon himself. In front of the whole village, this would have been public, and he goes towards his son. And he crosses these lines, this overreaching, abundant love and mercy. And this is where we get this, this love, this God that is filled with love and mercy running towards this son. The son returns and he starts to apologise, but before he even can, the father interrupts him. He kisses him and embraces him. Again, this notion of kissing and embracing this son was such a shameful thing for this father to do. In doing so, what he does is he takes everything that that son had done and puts it upon himself. All of the shame that that son had carried, the father says, it's mine now, it's not yours. And he robes his son, covers his shame. He tells his servants to go and get a robe, get the best robe, covers him. He's now restored into the family. Bring me the ring, the seal of the family, you're back. Shoes on his feet, you're no longer a slave. You're wearing shoes, you are restored. And the father restores his son to sonship. And the elders and everyone in the community are looking at this father going, is he crazy? Like, what is he doing? There's just this father who's just, like, that's just too extravagant. That's God though, right? Extravagant love. And so we have this public restoration and then we have a communal restoration. The father says, let's throw this massive festive feast. We're going to celebrate that my son that was dead is now alive. We're going to celebrate. And this feast, and again, here we have the meal. So yeah, we've had meals all the way through. But this meal, this was significant because it wasn't just festive, but it was a chance for communal restoration and forgiveness. This son was being brought back into the family, but also back into the community, into the village, and is being acknowledged as a son and no longer someone that is a slave or far off. It was this restoration that was forged not only for the son and his father, not only the son's life, but there was restoration happening within the community itself. But there is someone missing from this because we know that there were two sons and we know that the story goes on and, it, and Jesus mentions that there was this eldest son. And I think sometimes we quickly kind of brush over this and we go, oh, the parable kind of ends and like you just don't know what the eldest son chose. It's not really the point. 
The point of it was Jesus, knowing who is there, leaves the parable open for the invitation of restoration. Because what does the father do? The father sees the son standing, the older son, outside. If we were, um, if you can imagine the type of house they would have been in, you would have a dining room and then there would be like a garden and then the entryway for the house. So it was a very open kind of living, but there was the dining room here and from the dining room you'd be able to see out to the entry. So the father is sitting at the feast and he sees the eldest son standing outside the house. The father gets up and goes out to that son. Now this is significant because this is the same type of motion the father does with the younger son. Getting up from a feast and going out to your eldest son who's refusing to come in was shameful for the father. The whole community is watching, people outside, people inside. This father has had to get up and go out to his son. That's so shameful. How dishonouring can that eldest son be? The father gets up, though, goes out to the eldest son, and he says, my son, please come in. Please come in. What, your brother, who was dead, is now alive. The son doesn't even call him father. Again, there's this act of willful dishonouring heaping shame upon the father again. He's like, I'm not going in. I'm not calling you father. As an eldest son, his calling was to be like his father. But this eldest son says, I'm not on board with what you're doing. I don't want to come in. But how does the parable end? The parable ends with, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and alive again. He was lost and, and is now found. The father ends with, please come in. You are welcome to come in. Let us celebrate. Let's celebrate for what was lost was found. And we don't have the resolution in this story. But when we step back and we have a look at who was there again, it was the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees standing back. And Jesus is saying to them, please come in. You are welcome to this restoration. Because this parable is offering not just restoration for the younger son. It is a celebration of restoration for the eldest and the youngest son. And the invitation is the same. And I think that we are capable, I am capable, maybe not you, I am capable of acting like all three of these characters. In our churches, in our families, even within ourselves, we can spot partially healed, partially festering wounds. We can celebrate reconciliation in someone else's family, whilst maintaining a hard hostility within our own. We can allow ourselves to repent, to change our mind on one thing, but remain really stiff-necked on another. We might run down the road to embrace one person, but refuse to sit at the table with somebody else. And this is the challenge, but the beauty of it, and when we come back to what the kingdom of God is about, 
It is the invitation for all to restoration. I need it. I'm the eldest son and the youngest son and the father all in one in this story. I want to run and reconcile and run after those, but I'm also really stiff-necked on some things. I have been restored and forgiven, but I've also stood back. But the beauty of this, and when I think of Jesus sitting there telling this, it's not a rebuke. It is a welcome invitation to the restoration because in that restoration there is celebration and joy and the community of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God celebrates at the restoration that is ongoing, that is continuing. And so as we see through Luke, the kingdom of God is about this restoration. Jesus' example of eating with the tax collectors, with the sinners, with the Pharisees, matches the father's choice of both sons. And it's the illustration of the good news of this rule and reign, that word Basileia, the good news of the rule and reign of God is that it is seeking and restoring and rejoicing and inviting everybody to be a part of it. It's good news, right? It's great news. If you are totally new to this, new to coming to know who Jesus is and all of it. If you're going to take anything away, I just want you to know you are loved deeply. This God that we serve, that we celebrate, that we worship is one that gave everything and will always give everything to seek you and to restore you and to celebrate in your life and restoration. And I think even those of us who've walked this journey with Jesus for a long time, we still need that reminder too. And so we're going to take some time. This song, I love this song. It says, your grace is more than enough. It's all that I need. And the chorus says, freely you gave it all for us, surrendered your life upon the cross. Great is your love poured out for all. This is our God. This is the God we see in these parables. This is the God that we still get to worship and this is the God that still graciously restores us, each of us, every day.